invite you to open your copy of uh, God's Word to Psalm 14 with me. You know, one of the benefits about preaching consecutively through the Bible is you just preach the next thing, uh, no matter what it is. So last week, Psalm 13, this week, Psalm 14. One of the downsides about consecutive preaching in the Bible is you just preach the next thing. And 13 and now 14, and a little challenging for us perhaps, but I'm confident the Lord will see us through. Psalm 14, uh, let me read our passage as we begin this morning, uh, reading from the English Standard Version, hear the word of the Lord. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let's ask for God's help as we begin this morning. Uh, Father, uh, we come to this uh, challenging uh, psalm. Strengthen us with your grace uh, to hear it, not with our physical ears alone, uh, but with our spiritual ears, see it with spiritual eyes. Uh, Father, strengthen me, my voice, and my mind to preach clearly. Father, I pray you'd grant us by your grace receptive hearts that we would receive this for what it is, the Word of God, and nothing less. May it be the sharp scalpel that Hebrew speaks of, Hebrew 4.12, uh, sharper than any double-edged blade. Let us allow it to perform its surgery where it's needed in the room today. Uh, and Father, I pray that you and your grace and goodness would would guide us and lead us and, and reveal the truth, the incredible and important truth of Psalm 14 to us this morning. We ask through Christ. Amen. It was some years ago when uh, someone interviewed uh, rapper, record producer, entre entrepreneur, and fashion designer Kanye West. Uh, he asked for a new version of the Bible, a new version of Scripture in which he played the lead. I bring up historical subjects in a way that makes kids want to learn about them, said West. I'm an inspirational speaker. I've changed the sound of music more than one time. For all those reasons, I'd be, I'd be a part of the Bible. I'm definitely in the history books already. Well, that early interview uh, might reveal he's just one step shy of blasphemy, or he may just be stating the obvious, because he's already in the Bible. And you are too. And 
I'm there as well. Did you hear yourself mentioned in our scripture reading just a moment ago? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. It's actually worse than that. We're not only sinful creatures, as, as this indicates. Paul says that every part of us has been affected by sin. Sins have affected our, our spiritual lives. Uh, uh, we are completely cut off from ho our holy God, as Paul says in verse 11. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Our speech has been uh, completely infected by sin. And so Paul wrote, uh, they use their tongues to deceive. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Our personal relationships, I think we would readily admit, have been completely corrupted by sin, uh, infected with personal ambition, uh, mistrust, jealousy, conflict. And so Paul, again, says their feet are swift to shed innocent blood, shed blood, rather, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. You know, it's not that there are atheists everywhere you look. Uh, there are many who believe in God, and many recognize Him as the Creator. They just don't want Him interfering in their lives. And so Paul wraps up this portion, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is what many refer to as total depravity. And that label can be a, a little misleading. And hear, hear me explain the difference. When we use the label total depravity, we're not, not, N-O-T, underline, bold print, exclamation point. We're not saying that everyone is as bad as they could possibly be. That would be utter depravity. But this is clearly not the case. Everyone is not as bad as they could be. Uh, the average man or woman, I'm speaking generally, is not as depraved as, for example, Saddam Hussein, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, or any number of notorious sinners. The total in total depravity means that sin has touched every area of our lives. Every part of us has been corrupted by sin. Listen to R.C. Sproul define it for us. He says, Total depravity means that I and everyone else are depraved or corrupt in the totality of our being. There is no part of us that is left untouched by sin. He continues, Our minds, our wills, and our bodies are affected by evil. We speak sinful words, do sinful deeds, have impure thoughts. Our very bodies suffer from the ravages, ravages of sin. That's total depravity. Every part of us has been corrupted by sin. Why do we need to talk about this? I mean, frankly, there are so many other psalms in the Bible, you know, we because 
are so many in our man-centered culture that believe still in the inherent goodness of humanity. Nobody's perfect, they would say, to err is human. But deep down, they would also say, deep down, human beings are basically good. We hear this all the time. Father, I know there is good in you. Darth Vader, maybe that's a bad example. The question is, or let me not make it a question, but make it a statement. Basically good, that is not what the Word of God teaches. And aside from the third chapter of Romans, perhaps no place describes the human condition more clearly than Psalm 14. And we look into this psalm written by David. Uh, we hear him make three statements related to the human condition. First, we'll see the assessment of the human condition in verses 1 through 3. And then we'll see the avenger of the righteous believer in verses 4 through 6. And then third, we'll see the appeal for the Lord's, for the Lord's deliverance in, in verse 7. So let's look at these three statements in turn. The first being the assessment of the human condition. Uh, David assesses the human condition. Both David and the Lord actually uh, evaluate the human condition and, and conclude that no one does good. Let me, let me show you both assessments uh, beginning with David's uh, uh, to begin with. We see his assessment, uh, evaluation of the human condition in verse 1. And he, he mentions three things about uh, in his assessment, first he describes the confession of the unbelieving person in verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And right out of the gate, you hear the word fool, and you might think, well, that doesn't sound like a very nice thing to say. It's, it's really, frankly, quite insulting. That might be how David's statement might come across to modern ears, to those whose life motto is, be kind. And it certainly doesn't sound like David is abiding by that, being kind. Please remember, David's not out to be mean-spirited when he says this. Uh, after all, he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This assessment that he writes is breathed out by God. His assessment is really God's assessment of humanity. It, it might help if we understood what the word fool meant. The Hebrew term is nabal, or nabal. And in the Bible, this, this word doesn't mean someone mentally deficient or, or stupid, but morally deficient. The, the fool, this morally deficient person, is described at length in the book of Proverbs as the person who consistently and even stubbornly veers off the path to life. In 1 Samuel, there's actually a man named Nabal or Nabal. He was the living, breathing example of this morally deficient person. 
he had a very godly wife named Abigail who pleaded with David not to kill her fool of a husband. She said, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow. This is his wife. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. And so Dr. Steve Lawson comments, this term, fool, is a synonym for sinner. And it describes everyone who has no place for God in his or her life. I sang far too rambunctiously this morning. I'm sorry. <clears throat> well, further, the, the term fool doesn't refer to, to what we might think of uh, when, the when I say someone who doesn't believe in God or has no place for God. We're not talking about uh, the, the philosophical atheists that we see in our culture. Uh, we're not talking about alleged thinkers like Stephen Hawking or other atheists that are popular in the public eye. This is simply a person with, with no regard for God. The person who proclaims his independence from God. The, the person who disregards God's expectations and doesn't think anything of, that he is accountable to God. It says here, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Or more literally, it says simply, no God. As if to say, no God for me. The book of Romans says, to the contrary, these people know there's a God. They know he exists. But suppress their knowledge of God. I want you to hear this. It's really quite clear from Scripture. Uh, let me read you beginning in Romans 1.18. And listen to this person describe for us. Paul writes here, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the fool we're talking about in Psalm 14. This is the person who says at the core of their being, no God for me, thank you. From this confession then, David goes on to, to outline their conduct the conduct that spills out of this confession that they've made, uh, the behavior that flows out of this attitude. And in the middle of verse 1, David says, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. Uh, the, the phrase, they are corrupt, 
would be better translated simply, they corrupt. They spoil. He's saying that sinners corrupt everything around them. They infect the world with the conduct that flows from their hearts. It, it refers, the, the term corrupt refers to moral and spiritual decline. This is the same Hebrew term used in Genesis to describe the world at the time of the flood. It said in, in Genesis 6:11, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Isaiah uses this same Hebrew term to describe the nation of Israel. Listen to this. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They not only corrupt the world they live in, and I believe you can see this from personal experience, they corrupt the world they live in. Verse 1 goes on to say, they do abominable deeds, or they act abominably. They behave shamefully. And the reason they act this way is because this is what they desire in the very depth of their being. Listen to Jesus describe this, uh, the condition of, of their hearts. And this takes place in John 3.19. And this is the judgment. Um, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. This corrupt and abominable conduct comes out in the fool's actions because that is what he confesses and holds dear in his, his or her uh, heart, the, the cockpit, the center of who they are. Well, finally, we come to a conclusion, David's conclusion here. Uh, this is at the end of verse 1. Look at what he says. There is none who does good. There is none who does good. That might come across to some of you as an outrageous thing to say. How could he say that? How could he, how could he utter such a thing? Perhaps it's even offensive. People do good things all the time. First responders, doctors, and others help alleviate suffering in the world. So what does he mean? There's none who does good. He means that no one does good absolutely. Apart from Jesus Christ and His righteousness, nothing measures up to the perfect standard that God requires. God's Word says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen to Dr. Spruill explain it. We forget that God requires perfect obedience to His law. And if we fail to obey Him perfectly, then we're going to have to look elsewhere for a way to get to heaven. To be good in God's sight, conduct has to meet three conditions. It must be done according to the standard of God, His Word. Uh, our actions must line up with the righteous standard described in His Word. And we can look at our culture and see that certainly many actions of others do meet this first criterion. 
they are kind. Uh, they do sacrificially serve others. But that's not the only criterion. The second one says it must be done by the power of God. That is his spirit who indwells us. Not human strength, not fleshly strength, but God's strength given by his spirit. And here's the kicker, and this wipes out everybody. It must be performed for the glory of God. Actions cannot be done in self-interest, self-promotion, self-aggrandizement. Actions must be done for God's fame and honor and not our own. And I hopefully see that is the great leveler of all uh, outside of Jesus Christ who do not, not act to please the Lord but to, to uh, make themselves feel less guilty or look good in the eyes of other people. And so if these are the conditions for goodness in God's sight, and I, I, I believe they are and I agree with these, we have to agree with David here at the end of verse 1 where he says there's none who does good in God's sight. So this is David's assessment. Uh, David's assessment of the human condition. And he describes uh, the confession of the fool. He describes the conduct that flows out of that confession. And he concludes that there is none who does good. But this brings us to God's assessment. The Lord's assessment is the one we see next. And this comes in, in verses 2 and 3. Uh, you know, David's assessment is great. It's even breathed out by the Spirit. What does God actually say about the human condition? He's the judge that all humanity will stand before. Very important to understand his evaluation of our condition. What is he? How does he describe the human condition? Excuse me, there are two things. I want to point out here. And the first thing is we see the Lord's inspection in verse 2. Uh, and his, his uh, inspection uh, as Almighty God would be far superior than anything that David could see on the surface. Uh, listen to his inspection in verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. That's a reference to the human race, to all of humanity. And this phrase, the Lord looks down. Well, uh, that's how we would put it in human terms. Uh, it's as if the Lord is is got a pair of really nice, you know, uh, Zeiss uh, binoculars and can zero in on, oh, there's John Basso right there, and, and could see us. He doesn't need to do that because he knows all things perfectly. This is a figure of speech uh, describing God in human terms. He knows, he knows us so well that it's as if he looked down and saw every single one of us with close scrutiny. His omniscience, his all-knowing is penetrating. And he could see to the very core of a person and evaluate uh, what they're like. Uh, he looks down. Uh, David cautioned his son Solomon in light of this attribute. And then he warned Solomon in First Chronicles, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. 
For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. And then the prophet Jeremiah uh, describes the same attribute of God in Jeremiah 17.10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. What's the Lord looking for as he searches minds and hearts? Well, verse 2 goes on to tell us, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, or if there are any who act wisely, if there are any who possess skill in godly living. He's he's looking for those who fear him and follow his word. Uh, Job describes what he's looking for. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. He's looking for this kind of person, someone with spiritual understanding who walks wisely. He's also looking for, for someone who seeks after him. The next phrase says, who seek after God. Those who, who love him and follow him. He's, he's looking for people with, with godly desires. Those who long to please him. Those whose hearts are drawn to him. So to begin with, we see the, the Lord's inspection. Uh, his uh, examination of the human condition. His penetrating omniscience. Uh, it's as though he's peering over the edge of heaven to look down and determine what's in people's hearts. Are there any who, who live wisely? Is there anyone who seeks him and worships him? What does he find? This penetrating gaze. After examining humanity with with careful scrutiny, what does the Lord conclude? Verse 3 tells us. This is God speaking now. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's none who does good. Not even one. Uh, He he echoes David's assessment and he adds uh, some to it. Not even one. The word corrupt pops up again. It's it's a different Hebrew term than the one used up in verse 1. This Hebrew term uh, refers to, it was used to describe milk that had gone sour. And boy, I've had sour milk when our refrigerator went out. Wow. Uh, It refers to something that's become tainted. Uh, When this term is used in a spiritual sense, it refers to a person that's morally tainted, whose soul has gone sour, so to speak, whose soul has become corrupt and wicked. Look at who this describes. Please note who he's talking about. Uh, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. All and together, none, not even one. 
reveals that this is a blanket statement that applies to all of humanity. Apart from God and the righteousness that Christ gives, the human race is completely corrupted and spiritually ruined. Again, not, not that every person does, uh, uh, is as depraved as they could be, sinful as they could be, but that every part of them has been corrupted by sin. It's affected every human being apart from Christ. Romans 3, 23 echoes this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Steve Lawson concludes, Sin has devastated their total personality, leaving their mind darkened, their emotions depraved, and their will deadened. The entire world is under sin, which leaves people incapable and unwilling to do good. Friends, this is why we must be given new life from above. This is why you and I must be given new life to become a Christian. As Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born from above. You must be given a new heart. Listen to Paul uh, describe it to Titus. Paul says in Titus uh, 3, 5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, even renewal by the Holy Spirit. We must be given new life because of our condition. Uh, Ezekiel spoke of this same thing. Listen to these words. They're, they're fairly well known. Ezekiel 36 and 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Uh, that means a soft, malleable, moldable heart. And he goes on, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you uh, to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Friend, because we are completely corrupted, every one of us must receive this new heart so that we can turn to Christ and trust Him for the forgiveness of our sins. Apart from this rebirth, we don't desire Him. We love the darkness and hate the light. Uh, we must be given this, this new heart. Listen to Spurgeon say it. He's speaking to uh, the lifelong church attender here as he writes this, which is fitting for us in America. Because many of you uh, high school students and middle schoolers have grown up in church and it's just a good word. He says, do I address here, do I address one here who imagines that an orthodox creed will save him? You believe all the right stuff. I suppose that no one 
is more orthodox than the devil. Yet no one is more surely lost than he is. You may get a clear head, but if you have not a clean heart, it will not avail you at the last. You may know the Westminster Assembly's catechism by heart. Again, you, may, you might believe all the right things. But unless you are born again, it will not benefit you. Did you say that you believe the 39 articles? There is one article that is essential. You must be born again. And woe to that man who has not passed through that all-important change. Have you received this new birth? And I'm talking to you guys who have grown up here. It's not enough that you grew up here. It's not enough that mom and dad have saving faith. Friend, you have to be given life from above. You've got to be given a new heart by the Spirit of God. And that is how you become born again. That is how we believe and come to saving faith in Jesus. Apart from this, corruption goes all the way to the bone. And we will not turn towards Him without this new heart. I pray that this is your creed as well. So this is the full assessment. We've seen two now. We've seen David's and we've seen the Lord's. And they both come out the same place. There is none righteous. There is none who, uh, there is none who does good. No, not one. This is the first statement David makes. His assessment of the human condition. But he goes on and he makes another statement related to uh, the human condition. The second statement David makes concerns the avenger of the righteous. And he goes on to say that the godly person has someone to defend him from the fool. Uh, David mentions three things here in this uh, second statement. And first, he describes the assaults that believers experience from, from those who have uh, said no God. Uh, those who don't follow the Lord are, are assault those who follow him. We see this assault in verse 4. And the Lord begins, have they no knowledge? And, and this is written with a kind of air of surprise. Uh, of course, God knows all things, but it's meant to convey astonishment. I can't believe they have no knowledge. Uh, I, I can't believe uh, the, the wickedness, the, the sheer folly, the foolishness of the ungodly person. And... From this, these assaults come. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread. Now perhaps you had a slice of toast this morning. Don't raise your hand. Uh, English muffin. A bunch of us had biscuits in the back, which is a form of bread. And most of us did it without even batting an eye. Uh, bread's part of our nourishment, unless you're one of those freaky carb counter per people. I shouldn't have said freaky, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We eat bread without even thinking about it. And the point David is trying to express 
is the ungodly person destroys uh, the godly without even batting an eye. Uh, he consumes God pe God's people with the same indifferent attitude. And, and, and he goes on, and furthermore, they have no interaction with the Lord. It says next, and, and do not call upon the Lord. They do not uh, call out to him in saving faith or, or worship him as God. They, they, they live, again, they live as though he doesn't exist. No God for me. These are the assaults. But, but then, then uh, David goes on to describe their appointments. Uh, the judgment appointed for this person, this fool. Verse 5, they, there they are in great terror. Uh, or uh, literally, it could say, they will be terrified with a great terror. They will be overwhelmed with dread, as one, one scholar puts it. But when is David talking about? There they are in great terror. Where, where is there uh, that they're terrified? Um, it could refer to immediate, David's immediate circumstances. Uh, maybe King Saul, or, or maybe Absalom, his son, that revolted against him. And, 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 and those men did experience uh, immediate judgment. Um, there could be a time in David's near future when the Lord judged David's enemies. But ultimately there refers to that great day when every fool will stand before the throne of God. When the Lord speaks to them in the terror of divine judgment, there before the throne of God, sudden horror will overwhelm them as they realize how foolish they have been. This is the judgment appointed for the fool on the great day of God's wrath. And then third, David mentions the avenger, specifically the avenger of the righteous person, the avenger of the godly, the one who protects them from the assaults of the fool. In the second half of verse 5, for God is with the generation of the righteous, or God is in the generation of the righteous. He's been with his people the whole time. There's, there's a, uh, a union uh, with God and His people, with Christ and His people. There, there is such solidarity that when fools persecute His people, they are persecuting Him. This is exactly what Christ said to Paul or Saul on the road to Damascus. As, he, as he's on this campaign to... Uh, persecute the early church, Christ stopped him on the road to Damascus. And you, you might not remember, but Acts 9 says, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting me? There's such solidarity, their union is so close that to persecute the church, his people, was to persecute Christ. God is with his people. Christ is in his people. And further, verse 6 goes on to say, you would shame the poor. Uh, you would shame the plans of the poor. 
but the Lord is his refuge. The fool would humiliate the, the righteous man and woman, uh, known as the poor here in verse 6. But this poor person, the righteous person, has a place of safety and shelter in the Lord his God. It says the Lord is his refuge. That, that term refuge uh, in a physical sense refers to a cave or a hole someone could hide in, a crag or a, a rocky outcrop. Re remember that on at least two occasions, David sought refuge in caves as he fled from Saul and his army. But it's, it's used here in a, in a figurative sense. It's not a literal cave David describes. It's a place of safety, a, a place where you're free from danger. What, what a cave was in a physical sense. The Lord is in a spiritual sense. He, he delivers from danger. He keeps us safely. Listen to these well-known cross-references that use this same word. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Psalm 46, 1. And then Psalm 61, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. So the fool would mock and humiliate God's people, but they have an avenger, one who keeps them, one who protects them, the Lord God of Israel. This is the third thing David mentions in the adventure of God's people. Uh, the Lord protects the righteous. So this is his second statement. He makes an assessment of the human condition, and then he describes the avenger of the righteous. And here he goes on to make a third statement about the human condition. He, he goes on to describe or to make an appeal to heaven. David prays for the day when the Lord will restore and re, uh, deliver his people from the fool. Uh, there are two things here I want to point out to you. First, he asks and prays for deliverance in verse 7. He says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. He might be praying for immediate deliverance again, maybe against Saul, maybe against Absalom or some other foreign enemy. Uh, if so, he's praying that the Lord's deliverance would come out of the temple in Jerusalem, out of Zion. Ultimately, this looks forward to the final day when the Lord returns from the heavenly Zion to restore his people. And so one man writes, every enemy will be liquidated and every danger eliminated when he will set them in the safety for which they long. And then Steve Lawson adds, David longed for the time when the Lord would establish God's kingdom upon earth and restore the fortunes of his people. That final day, a day marked by divine conquest. So this is, David calls out for this deliverance. He, he, he confesses that God is the avenger of his people. He prays that he would quickly do the avenging here in this uh, prayer for deliverance. And then the second thing is the joy that will come from this deliverance. As verse 7 goes on to say, When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. 
these words are essentially synonyms. They include uh, joy, uh, rejoicing because of God's deliverance, uh, and on that day we will be joyful. It, it, both terms also carry the idea of the vocal expression of that joy. Um, uh, the word rejoice in particular uh, communicates loud rejoicing. Uh, we will be uh, hollering on that day when Christ returns. Uh, you know, no more allergies and the enemies have been removed. Your sin nature is gone. You can stand bolt upright again because your back doesn't hurt. And then there's Christ. It will be a time of immense lung-bursting joy for those who know Him. And so while the fool experiences terror on that day, there they are in great terror but it's held out for the godly person, man, woman, or child on that day is rejoicing in gladness. This is David's appeal to heaven. So, what does God say about the human condition? What does His Word teach? Does the Bible teach the inherent goodness of humanity? That humanity is basically good. Deep down inside, there is good in every person. No. 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 The Bible does not teach that. God never said that. We see what the Bible teaches about the human condition in this psalm, where we've heard David make three statements about our human condition. We... we heard the assessment of the human condition. Uh, all have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And then David made a statement concerning the avenger of the righteous believer. Under assault from the fools of this world, the believer has the Lord as his refuge. And then third, we saw the appeal to heaven. David prays for the ultimate rescue and restoration of God's people on the final day. Let me conclude with uh, a couple of applications for us this morning. And I want to ask you if you've come to realize that there is nothing in yourself to commend you to God. Have you come to know that there is nothing in yourself to commend you to God? Apart from Jesus Christ and His righteousness, God's Word tells us that all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We must turn away from our own righteous acts to rely on the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Friend, have you done that? If you, if you have not done so or are confused about what I mean when I say that, uh, I, I would love to talk to you as would any of the elders present uh, about what it means uh, 
to leave behind your own righteous acts to, to rely on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and only Him. There's another application, and that's maybe to you if you live by the motto, Be kind. And that motto is good up to a point. Even God's Word calls us to, to be kind in Colossians 4. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Boy, we should put that on our computer screens before we go on Facebook or Twitter or anything. But you realize, don't you, that to let someone go on believing that they're basically a good person at heart is the most unkind and unloving thing you could do for them. Do you grasp that? To let someone go on believing that they're basically a good person is the most unkind and loving thing that you could do for them to let them continue in that error without telling them the truth is to, condemn, is to condemn them to eternal conscious torment in hell. So tell them the truth, but tell them the truth with the gracious and loving attitude that God's word calls us to. for all of those who live by the motto, be kind. Let me close us in prayer. I pray, Lord, that whatever our opinion of the human condition was when we came in today, that we will modify whatever we have been thinking to conform to what the words of Psalm 14 have, have said to us, what you have said to us, God. I pray that uh, we would submit to your word in this regard. Uh, in particular, Lord, if there's anyone here who has yet to, to trust in you, who's relying on their own righteous acts, who believes they're basically good at heart, I pray that your truth would penetrate them and Jesus, they would see your payment for sin on the cross and be drawn to saving faith in you. And Father, the rest of us I, I, who know you, I, I pray that you'd give us courage and gentle speech and gracious speech to say to those around uh, in our, uh, our friends, our, our circle of influence. And in fact, they're not basically good, but all of us have been profoundly and completely affected and corrupted by sin. And we must turn to Jesus as our only Savior and Lord. Give us courage to share this wonderful news that Christ paid for everything on the cross. <coughs> Savior, we pray this in your name. Amen.